Before we start this episode, Alex Johnson, please subscribe to General Spec Podcast on Spotify. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter, General Spec Podcast. Enjoy the show. Alex Johnson, uh, welcome to the General Spec Podcast. How are you? Thank you. Uh, I'm very well. Uh, how are you? Grand, yeah. I was just saying before we started about the, uh, we won't talk about the, the United performance today. We'll, we'll, we'll brush past that. But uh, thanks very much for, for coming on. Um, just like to give an introduction to the, to the listeners a, a bit about you. And then uh, if there's anything missing, um, just just say. So you're a Swedish uh, freelance journalist. You're, you're living currently in, in Spain, in Vigo. Uh, you cover La Liga, European football for UEFA. You've written for 442 Marker. You've worked for TV2 Norway and also television in, in Sweden. You're a Real Oviedo fan, uh, and so much so that you're actually writing a book on them. Uh, Alex, have I missed anything uh, glaring off that list? Uh, no, I don't think so. Working for, I've worked for a lot of different uh, outlets, so it's, it's a big mix. <laughs> cool. And um, we'll sure we'll get into that. Um, so what part, of, um, what part of Sweden are you from? Um, the very south you can get to Sweden, basically. Like if you if you look at the map of Sweden and you go to a south far south you can to the to the west, you can see there is this little thing sticking out from the country, and that's where I'm from. <laughs> cool. And grow, growing up, was was sport always something you're interested in, or? Yeah. So um, my parents they they really wanted me and my siblings to to try all kind of sports and all kind of activities. So we basically got to, to try anything we wanted to try and, and everything that was available. Um, and I tried, started playing football when I was five and got completely hooked on it. So after that, I mm-hmm. kept on doing other sports as well, but uh, all of them just stopped when they came in connection with the football and I had to decide which one to do. Uh, football always won uh, without, without a doubt. What, what positions did you play? Uh, he used to play as a striker. Oh, okay. Plenty of great uh, Swedish uh, strikers. So any any of them? Yeah. Particular Sorry? heroes growing? Any particular heroes growing up in uh, from sport or? Yeah, um, especially Henrik Larsson. So when I was growing up in, in the late nineties, he was, uh, you know, the big star in, in Swedish football. And, and watching him play for for the Swedish national team, he he became my 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 idol and my hero. So I I always played football with number seven, but cool. I do not know what came first. If it was that I I liked Henrik Larsson because he had seven like me, or if I had seven because Henrik Larsson had seven, I I have actually no idea what came first. <laughs> but I always play with seven. A big fan of of Larsson myself. Um, obviously, follow a bit of Celtic as well, and um, you know, absolute god. For, for them and obviously towards the end of his career as well actually still achieved winning the Champions League with Barcelona so an absolute um, yeah absolute G, uh, gem of a player um, so from from your side then did um, how did you go into sports journalism did you go straight from into from school to university or how did this how did it go for you so uh, in basically it started kind of in primary school when I was uh, maybe 14 14, 15, um, I had to 
to write a novel or something in school and I completely hated writing which is quite interesting since that's why I decided to dedicate my life to do later uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but I managed to, 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 to convince my, my teachers instead of writing a novel I got to do two opinion pieces if I agreed that one of them would not be about football because I managed to make everything about football in school um, and uh, and I did those two and and I think it was like one of the first times where I realized like my teachers were really impressed uh, with my writing. Uh, I was also like a moment where I in realized because I was growing up in a quite small village and my school was very small. So we were like nine people in, in my uh, year, for example. Um, and at home, no one was really football interested. No one in school was really football interested, even in my football team. The girls, they liked playing football, but they didn't really like watching football like I did. So I never yeah, really had yeah. an outlet to talk about football and be the nerd that I was. And that's kind of where I realized like I could do that online. I could, could write about football and, uh, and have people actually who were actually interested in listening to me rather than, than just speaking all of my random stats and facts to people who couldn't care less. Um, and that's kind of how I started, started writing. And then uh, in Sweden, when you're uh, 16, so from 16 to 18, you go to, I guess the easiest uh, um, translation would be high school. Um, and then we have different types. So you can pick one that, that has a subject that is very interesting for you. So I actually went to a media focused high school uh, with, uh, with the, uh, I went on the, what's it called with the, like the subject of, of uh, journalism yep. uh, so I did that and then when I was 18 um, I uh, or when I finished graduated so actually when I was I turned 19 that summer I moved to to Spain and I never actually went to university and then like I okay. kind of started directly and so you said about um, you know uh, being nerdy and, and and having not having necessarily have outlets for for sport or for football did you like um obviously today there's so much statistics about football xg yep. and, and all the other like say football manager were, were, were any of those a kind of an outlet for you or growing up or did it take your interest no i think for me it was more rather like the stories around football and, and learning about the clubs about the players and and like stuff like that rather than maybe the statistics itself that that comes yeah. as an extra uh, uh -huh. but I remember that in, when I was maybe 12 or 13 I I had a notebook in school that whenever the teachers didn't look and thought I would write in that notebook instead and pretend working but what I did was just writing down Henrik Larsson's entire football career and everything <laughs> he had done from when he, he was a kid until where he was at that time which I think it was just about the time where he signed for Barcelona so I was, I was really nerd in that way. Uh, and I, like I said before, I, I thought at least that I didn't like writing, but I did sit in school with my notebook and write about Henrik Larsson all day. So I guess I did, did like writing. Uh, for myself, even to this day, I, I kind of nerd out on, um, I quite enjoy like just looking at players' careers on Wikipedia, looking at what clubs they were at, their, kind of their, where they moved from. And that's kind of, I just find myself sometimes just kind of going down a rabbit, hole, a Wikipedia rabbit hole, a rabbit hole, should I say, and um, and and looking at players. And stuff like that. That. I don't know. If, again, and, that, that might be quite unique to me, but I don't know if, if anything else like that you did yourself. No, but definitely, like I, you know, you, I, I like 
still today in, in work, my work, like what I think I enjoy the most is actually the research rather than maybe the interview itself or, or the game itself. But it's like doing all the research and, and finding out all of these things. And you, you can sit for hours, not, not necessarily as Wikipedia, but it's going from article to article and then learning more and more about a specific player or a specific club. Um, and I, I guess I have like the tendency of when I get interested for something, I get, I get really obsessed with it. Uh, and football in general but then it goes very small and smaller and smaller so it can be like focusing on one player like like Henrik Larsson when I was younger or or like a specific football club or just wanting the, the stories and finding more than just finding the statistics of how many goals that players scored at that team but rather mm-hmm. also finding what, what is that player's childhood story like how did he get from from growing up in that little town to be playing where he is today what, what happened along the way and and all of those kind of things is I just, like it's really stuck and then suddenly I've been sitting for hours and it's like why am I looking at the results of a game in the third division from 2002 like why am I <laughs> yeah. here, here trying to figure out who was in the starting 11 for that game it's, it's just really really strange thing sometimes so we'll um we'll talk as well later on about um some of those some of those specific stories and and, and features that you've done but in between did working on the Olympics occur what before or after you moved to Spain? Uh, so that was after. So that was uh, the Olympics was in, in 2020 uh, or 2021 in the end. But I moved to, to Spain the first time in 2012. Oh, wow. Uh, and then I moved back to Sweden after living in Barcelona for three years. And then I moved back again to Spain in 2018. How did you find that first move from, from Sweden to, to a big city like Barcelona? How did, how did you go, how'd that go? So basically, when I was 14, I got a Christmas gift from my dad to go with my dad and my sister to, to Barcelona to watch Barcelona play against Atletico Madrid at, at Camp Nou. And mm-hmm. I remember walking the streets when we were in Barcelona. I was like completely amazed just being in a city where there was so much football everywhere, yeah. and, uh, especially coming from a place where people were maybe not that crazy about it. Yeah. Uh, and just walking those streets and, and the city being so beautiful, I was like, I'm going to move here as soon as I can. And then when I got back home, I started saving money, basically. Um, and when so I kind of when I was 14, decided that as soon as I graduated, I was going to move to Barcelona. So that was that was never a question. <laughs> Everyone knew that was going to happen. Uh, and then I went to study Spanish. So the first six months I lived in Barcelona, I was uh, at a language school uh, studying Spanish. And uh, but it was, in, it was obviously a big move when when you're 19 and you go on your own. Uh, but I think I was so determined on what I wanted to do. So uh, it kind of just worked itself out. And it's just more like later looking back that that's quite a lot when, when you're 19 to go and do that on your own, uh, like not going with anyone else, but, but just moving first time, moving away from home and you do it to another country and you do it on your own. But I think I learned, I learned a lot from that experience. And also being in Barcelona, more than my Spanish, I improved my English a lot uh, by studying Spanish there I was obviously hanging out with people from yeah. uh, different countries and, and just learning about different people different countries different cultures by, by hanging around with so many different internationally people uh, and then after six months I, I my, like my year my idea from the start was to go for a year yeah. um, but to study six months and then see if I wanted to study six months more or, or do something else uh, but then I also had the savings so I 
I stayed for a year. And then during that, I, I started writing for blogs. I started uh, getting a lot of, getting to know a lot of journalists, getting a really good network. And, and then from there, I, I got the opportunity to write for some, some Swedish uh, news sites back in Sweden about Spanish football. And I just, just stayed on and ended up staying there for three years. And, um, uh, yeah. I, I, sorry if I haven't, I don't think I've asked yet, but uh, we're talking about Henrik Larsson, but which, which team did you grow up supporting? Uh, Malmö FF. So, oh, the okay. te- so it's mm-hmm. the wrong team if you're on Henrik Larsson. <laughs> because Larsson is from Helsingborg. Yeah. But, but I always defend myself with that when I was old enough to watch, start getting into watching football, he was already at Celtic. So for uh-huh. me, he's not a Helsingborg man, he's a Celtic man. <laughs> um, so th- then uh, currently you are based in, in Vigo in, in Spain, isn't that correct? Yeah. No, so you've got um, you start working for um, for La Liga and you're covering the um, the northern kind of northern Spanish teams and, and, and all that. How did how did that role come about? Yeah, so basically after I moved, I moved back to Sweden from Barcelona because I felt I had a great network in Spain, but not really in Sweden. And to work for for Swedish media, I kind of needed to to make that better. Um, so I went back to Sweden and then I had like two limbo years where I was trying to figure out really what I wanted to do. And then finally, I just realized what I really wanted to do was move back to Spain. Um, and during those two years as well, Jon Gudetti signed for, for Celta de Vigo, a Swedish player. Yep. Uh, so I traveled a lot between Sweden and, uh, and, and Spain during those two years. And spend, I would go like for two months traveling around Spain and, and things like that. Just go to games, do interviews and all kinds of things. And I ended up going to, to Vigo a lot during that time because uh, Gudetti was the only Swedish player in, in La Liga. And, and he was playing for Celta and was at that time a very interesting player for Swedish media uh, because a lot of people wanted to read about him. So I spent a lot of time in Vigo in general and in northern Spain. Um, so then when I decided I wanted to move back to Spain, it was kind of where do I want to go? And I knew I've already done Barcelona. I don't want to go to Madrid because Madrid and Barcelona, that's where everyone goes. And I kind of wanted to do something else. And for me, the, you said like the medium teams uh, yeah. for me is much more interesting because it's another type of uh, football around, culture around it. It's not as much tourism. It's not much, you know, everyone's yeah. already writing a million articles about Barcelona and Real Madrid. So it would be much more interesting to to find these other sites that are really really good and, and learn about them and and like the fan base and, and everything like that. So then I was between northern Spain or Sevilla because Sevilla is one of my favorite cities in Spain. Realize I'm a Swede, so I would <laughs> die in the heat of Sevilla. Yeah. So that was not an option. <laughs> and then it was uh, northern Spain, and, and then they decided to move to Oviedo. Because I uh, had learned about this incredible story around Real Oviedo uh, from when I lived in, in Spain before. And I'd been there two times uh, on my trips to, to Spain while I lived in Sweden. And I wanted to do, uh, I decided I wanted to do a book about Real Oviedo. So my decision was to move to Oviedo for six months. Because it's a team in the second division. So it was not long term to live there in terms of work-wise. So I moved there for six months is to do as many interviews I could and like the start part of, of the, this idea I had for my book. And then um, while I was in Oviedo, uh, and then I would decide where to go next. 
And then while basically within a week of moving back to Spain, I started getting these incredible job opportunities that I was basically two, two weeks before moving to Spain. I had absolutely nothing. I had no idea what I was going to do yeah. uh, work was. So it's like, okay, since I have no idea, I'm just going to go there and start working in this book. And if I have to go and work, you know, in a cafe or whatever, mm-hmm. to, to um, an income for, for living, I will do that. But basically that week, uh, I don't really know. It's just like a lot of contacts that you that I created during all the years leading up to that. Um, and by luck, I don't know. There was just a lot of different work opportunities. Uh, I was got a call if I wanted to go to the World Cup and cover Sweden. Um, I got uh, a call from La Liga if I could do some work for them. And uh, there was this um, content hub about that was called La Liga Lowdown that asked me if I could do some things for them. And it was just piling up, finding thing after thing. Um, so I was actually quite busy <laughs> while I was in Oviedo with, with other things as well. Uh, but then I, I was between, do I go to Galicia and Vigo or go, do I go to the Basque country when I was deciding when I was going to move? And uh, in the end, I think going to the Basque country would have made a lot more sense. Because at that time, Jon Guretti had already moved to Deportivo Alaves. Yeah. And you had, I think at that time, you actually had five teams in La Liga in the Basque country. But for some reason... I decided to go to Vigo. I think it was more because I'd been here a lot before. I really liked the city. I really liked the people. I knew people here. And I also had a friend who, who said I could come and, and crash on her couch, basically, until I find a place of my own. So, so that's how I, I ended up in Vigo. Uh, so that's a, a long story. but, no, <laughs> but That's brilliant. It. It's, it touches upon a couple of things, really. You're talking yeah. about, um, you know, not the... Cause I, probably 10 years ago I went to see a Barcelona game against Espanyol and obviously as a tourist and I can imagine and obviously being in Manchester going to United you do see as they are referred to as day trippers but I do quite enjoy myself going to the lower lower leagues or lower teams to see that so it's interesting how you said about the the teams outside the let's say the top three or four and have, have a large fan base um, and as well as that you, you, you also mentioned about Oviedo which we'll definitely get into so how would you say the um, the quality, you know, obviously Barcelona, Real, Atletico, Seville as well, Villarreal also have all performed very well in European football. But how do you, what is that? How would you compare that, say, out to the top six in, in, in Spanish football? How much is there a big drop, big gap between between those? I don't really think it is. I think it is very, very high quality all through the first division. Then when you come down to the to the second division, it's there it might be a bit of a gap between uh, between some teams. But in the first division, I think quality wise, the football is is really really good. Uh, you can go and watch like the two worst teams in the league, and it's still going to be good football. Yeah. Um, and I think European wise, Spain has kind of showed that if you look outside of of Barca and Real Madrid's and Atletico's achievements, if you look at the Europa League, for example. Yeah. And you see how many times Sevilla wins it, you see Villarreal win it, you see how uh, Real Sociedad are doing in Europa League now. And you have several teams that, that has touched on that, that Celta in the Europa League semi-final back now of quite a few years ago, but, but yeah. still. Um, and you've had, going even further back, you have Deportivo Alaves playing a UEFA Cup final. Yeah. So I think in there is very, very high like the lowest quality in La Liga is is still very, very high. And 
that's the thing as well that I think there is so much focus on Barcelona and Real Madrid that it's very easy to forget about the rest. Uh, but for me, the rest sometimes play more entertaining football and, yeah. uh, and those games can be, be really fun to watch. And you have certain teams that you just know, like if you go and watch a Real Betis game, it's always going to be fun. It can be chaotic at times. It can be you can go and watch like an incredible football game, and sometimes it, you you don't even know if if you could call it football. So it, it can vary like that as well. But I think that the level is is very high, and most often it's not the the quality of the football that becomes a problem for for Spanish team. It's rather how they are run, um, and people are higher up and weird signings being made, weird coaches and weird decisions and, and stuff like that, that that ruins teams and make them go down the divisions. But, uh, uh, but I think in general, the, the quality of Spanish football is really good uh, outside of the top three. So, so then talking on to, um, you know, being a supporter of Oviedo and um, maybe for the people listening in, you could give a background to that club. Because uh, I do know myself that Quite a few journalists, um, like Sid Lowe and, and others, are, are kind of an active supporter of the club. So, wh- why is Real Oviedo such a, a popular team, especially for for people um, not from Spain? I think it's um, it's a team that has a very special recent history. So they used to be a La Liga club, and actually, I think it's up in, until like two seasons ago they had actually been more seasons in La Liga historically than they had in in the second division. But I think that's switched now. Um, but anyway, so they used to play in La Liga and and be a quite decent La Liga side, but then they were relegated in two thousand and one um, from from La Liga. The coming season they were relegated from the second division. And then they were forced relegated directly down to the fourth division because of uh, unpaid salaries. And the fourth division, which at that time was called the Serra División in Spain, is not really the fourth division. It's rather like the 32nd division mm-hmm. in the way that the system is built up. So they went from, from playing Camp Nou, uh, Bernabeu, to be playing basically you know, the, the neighborhood teams and uh, on, on shit pitches in the middle of nowhere and, and things like that. So yeah. it was very drastic. And uh, they got into a lot of debt, or, or they were in a lot of debt at that time. So this was in, in 2003, and they, they didn't afford having any employees. They didn't afford electricity or warm water at the training ground. Basically, the club was dead, and, yeah. and everyone expected it, it to be and not survive. And I'm gonna, not going to go into details because that's why I'm writing a book because it's yep. so, so long, <laughs> the story, but I'm going to try to make it short. Uh, but anyways, what happened was that the supporters refused to let the club die. So they would come uh, and they would call, sit in like for hours and call everyone who was a member of Real Oviedo and tell them like the club is not dying, please renew your membership card uh, and things like that. They would come and fix up the training ground. They would make sure, fix electricity themselves and, and things like that. Like anything that needed to be done, the fans would do for free. Um, and the players in the first team would be, was youth team players because all the first team players had left. So you had one of them was uh, actually a 17 year old guy named Michu, mm-hmm. who you might have heard of. Yep. Uh, so, so that was the situation of the club. And basically every day was a fight to, to have the club survive. Um, and this kept on for a few years uh, where they was like, is continuously struggling to keep the club alive, but the supporters 
just did anything they could and, and managed to, to keep them alive. Then they had an investor coming in in 2006 saying he was going to be the savior of the club. He ended up being wanted by Interpol and Melaviro <laughs> were in even more depth when he left. And by 2011, 2012, there around Christmas, they were in a situation where this this cannot be like there's no way to keep this club alive anymore. Like it doesn't matter what we do. Yeah. Um, and you had four guys who has gone in as, as board members at this point. Um, and there is like basically fans and they were sitting there trying to come up with ideas like what can we do? What could we do as a last effort to try to save our club? And one of them came up with the idea of selling shares. So they started selling shares for uh, I think it was 10 euros something. Uh, per share so very small ones very cheap and every day for months there was a queue outside of the offices of people uh, that wanted to buy shares Um, and it just it just never ended but they also realized that even if every single person in Oviedo buy shares it won't be enough to save the club and then one of the guys had the idea of uh, of like let's try to reach outside of Oviedo and he called one of his friends who was Sid Lowe, who you just mentioned. And, and Sid was like, okay, let, let, let me try this thing. And he wrote a tweet on Twitter. And this was the year when Marta, Mitchell and Casorla, who all came up through Oviedo, uh, were probably the three best players in the Premier League that season. Yeah. And that's when Sid put out a tweet that was the club that gave the Premier League, Mitchell, Marta and Casorla, is under threat of going out of business. Please uh-huh. buy shares, SOS Real Oviedo. And sent a, put in a link, which went to a website they had made where they had translated to English. And they made so you could buy, buy shares with PayPal. And this just exploded. And news media from all over the world started writing about it. And it helped having the photos and the videos of these fans standing in queue outside the stadium and just doing anything they could to, to save the club. I think that weekend as well. Uh, Oviedo were playing Real Madrid's B team and Real Madrid decided to buy shares in the club to try to help them and I think every single player in that Real Madrid B team did as well Uh, so it became this enormous movement and I think in the end today Real Oviedo basically has a shareholders in almost every country in the world there exists Real Oviedo shareholders because this movement just grew and grew and grew and, and everyone wanted to try to help this this small this club in a historic club in Spain and um, and that's how the club was saved and eventually also uh, Carlos Slim who was the richest man in the world at the moment bought shares as well so uh, it's just an incredible story of how yeah. a community and then the entire world kind of comes together to save a football club um, so that's the the story that drew me to to Avia like I I bought shares myself because I was living in Barcelona at the time and I saw Sid Lowe was going crazy on Twitter. I think he, he told me, he tweeted so many times that he was suspended for four, 24 hours oh. because he hit the, the limit of tweets you were allowed to do uh, in a day. Um, and so, so I read, like, learn about it through him. I was like, I, I love Spanish football, so I want to help as well. So I bought a share. And then when I was in, one time when I was in, in Vigo for, for work, I, it was like international um, break so there was no football here and I was like the, the second division is on so I jumped on a bus and went to to Oviedo and watched the game um, and then Sid told me I, I, well I said I wanted to write an article about about this story so, so Sid told me people I should speak to and introduce me to them 
And then the more I learned about this story, the more incredible it was. So I, for a while, I had the idea of writing an article. And then I realized that there, there's no way I can write an article about this and really make it justice. Because it's, it's such a deep and long story and so many layers to it. Yeah. Uh, so that's when I kind of later on decided I wanted to do a book. But I wasn't, I wouldn't call myself a Real Oviedo fan at the time, okay. time when I moved yeah. to Oviedo and when I started the book. That, that came later. <laughs> but I think it's spending so much time around this club with these people that are incredible uh, and these supporters, it's just impossible not to, to become a supporter of that club. And I personally don't think you can like just decide one day I'm going to support this club. It's just something that happens to you. True. And, yeah. I, and, and I think it was one of the many derbies I've been to where, where Real Oviedo played sporting. I just noticed how I was sitting being so nervous. I was basically shake, shaking. And I was like, wait a minute. I think I'm supporting this club. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the sign. So, so it kind of gradually happened. But, but now I'm definitely a Real Oviedo supporter. <laughs> Brilliant. That, that's... Um... I can tell why you're, you're you'd write a book on it. Is that I mean you've you've just given this humanism of a background to it, and it's it's a fascinating story. And and um, what what is so in, in obviously in the English Premier League, you got Man United might be bought, look like they're going to get sold to uh, Qatar or or Radcliffe. Um, what from my point of view, I see Spanish clubs where you've like the socios who kind of for Barcelona, and um, so the fans own it. What is and but then at the same time, Peter Lim isn't it? Who's the owner of of Valencia? So what is the in comparison, say Germany, where this is a fifty plus plus one rule? What is the situation of club ownership in Spain now? So I think most most clubs has an owner here. So it's like Oviedo has still has shareholder owners, but it is the fans because it's the fans who bought the shares. So it becomes like many small shareholder owners, but it's not a social club club because it's not a member member run club like barcelona is for example uh, and i think the majority of the clubs in spain um are have an owner or or everybody's like uh, real sociedad as well they also did the same kind of thing with the shareholder thing they took kind of that idea from oviedo when they were when they won promotion to la liga because when they won promotion to la liga they were first not going to let be let to play in La Liga because they didn't have a big enough budget. They didn't have, uh, I, I don't remember exactly how it worked, but it's like a, a certain limit that you need to be above to be allowed to, to even play in the first division. And, and they were too small, so they didn't have that. So they did a kind of shareholder thing, just the same way that Oviedo did. But in their, for, for them, it was not to survive. For them, it was to be able to play in La Liga and get enough uh, funding for that. So I think they have a similar situation. But in general, um, I think most clubs has uh, has an owner. If you take Villarreal, for example, it's a team from a very small city, but their owner, if it's not changed, because I'm very not very up to date on these things, um, is the owner of uh, Mercadona, which is one of the biggest supermarkets in Spain. So, so they actually have quite a lot of money. So a lot of fans from other Spanish teams get quite upset when everyone always tried to go with the story of how incredible it's that little Villarreal are playing Champions League semifinals at finals and they're like but they got a lot of money <laughs> I still think it's incredible that little Villarreal do that but uh, but anyways so I think it's more owners here but I also feel like they, there's so many clubs in Spain that have been really burnt uh, like Valencia are now with Lim by bad owners so it is a big scare as well uh, when it comes People come in and, and say they're going to invest a lot of money 
uh, in your club, uh, at, start, at the start, the fan base is always going to be very, very skeptical and against it because there's so many clubs that because of, like, like I was telling you, that happened to Oviedo uh, with Alberto Gonzalez, who then <laughs> wanted for Interpol. And we have so many clubs that Racing Santander, for example, who used to be a prominent La Liga club, uh-huh. they're down in the lower, lower divisions today because, uh, because of that. Um, and it, it's happened just so many bad stories, uh, like uh, nightmare stories in Spanish football. So I think it's um, the, the fan base, at least, are not very uh, excited about, about seeing someone coming in, and especially from abroad and, and saying they're going to come and, uh, and invest a lot of money in their club because it's, they just don't trust it. Doesn't is a Jerry Piquet owner of a club in Andorra? That's yeah, big. yeah. Andorra FC, I think, is the name of of the club. But they're actually playing in the Spanish uh, yeah. league system, which is interesting because Andorra has one as well. I don't really know how that that actually works. I haven't looked into yeah. it quite that much, to be honest. Huh. Interesting, um, brilliant. So the obviously you go obviously part of your job, you go to the matches and and and, and report on them. I've seen Spanish uh, clubs through European football come to come to the play uh, Champions League, Europa League games in, in the UK, and obviously very very well supported. What is what is the the fan culture like in Spain though for going to an away game? Is this because in the UK it's very it's a very big thing? The fans getting the trains and traveling traveling to across the country. Um, but what's it like in Spain? Is it is it do they get large portions of people traveling to away matches or is, is it predominantly um, a smaller group and, and it's the mainly the home fans? So, so sadly, the away culture in Spain is almost non-existent. Um, and I think there's probably many reasons for it. But one is that La Liga makes it very, very difficult for you to go to an away game uh, with their scheduling because they come out with their scheduling very late. Uh, so there's not often not even t- not enough time for people to, to plan around it and so that they can go with, when it comes to work and other things to, to an away game, uh, then it's very expensive. Uh, the way tickets are often very expensive. Um, it just makes it very, very difficult uh, for for fans in, in Spain to go to away games in general. And I think that is one of the reasons. And then just historically, I guess, they, they don't just, just don't have that culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's more if it's a close game. But if you take derbies, for example, you... Yeah, there is so many Sevilla and Betis fans who has never stepped foot in other team's stadium because it's the rival stadium and they, they would rather die than to go there, basically. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so even in those kind of scenarios, you might have less than you would have had in, in other countries. Uh, but then you have teams. Betis is probably one of the best teams when it comes to away support, but that I think also has to do with there is so many Betis fans spread all over Spain. Um, so it might not be as much traveling because when they play in Mallorca, like all the Betis fans who live in Mallorca will go to the game. When they play in Barcelona, all the Betis fans who live in Barcelona or in Catalonia will go to the game. So I think it's a lot, a lot of that. Um, if you go back to, to Real Oviedo, I think they are quite special in the sense with away fans because they are probably one of the best teams supported away. And I think that comes from the history I was telling before from when they were down in the fourth division and they were forced to play at these small pitches in Asturias and they would go thousands of fans to, to these small grounds that didn't even ba- barely yeah. have stands. 
And I think they created a, a community kind of thing around of doing these travels and, and following the team and supporting it, so, which are then transmitted now when they're in, in Segunda and, uh, and they still do it to especially the closer games, but then also to some further away. So, so they probably have more away fans than, than many teams. But in general, it's it's not that that common. It happens, um, but it's smaller groups, I would say. Like in, it, it's it's not like in Sweden. It's very big doing the, yeah. the away day, you know. And you have people who would go to thirty away away games a, a season. But in Spain, I think maybe you do an away day once a season or something like that. So you pick where you want to go and you go do like a mini vacation out of it and, and go to the game so it's it's definitely a lot smaller and, and very different but i i think had it been easier to do uh people would probably do it more but you see when as soon as there's a special game like if it's the copa del rey semi-final or a copa del rey final for example you will have so so many supporters going i know that when uh, when real sociedad was playing in the uh, semi-final of the Copa del Rey a few years back when they, when they ended up winning it uh, they were playing as Miranda de Ebro and it was like over a thousand Real, Real Sociedad fans who travelled to this very very small stadium and the stadium was so packed that there was people like sitting in the stairs and like was too many journalists also than what there was space for uh, and then I know that uh, I spoke to some Real Sociedad fans and they had already booked their flight and their tickets and everything to Sevilla for the final. Sadly, then that final ended up being without fans. But it's, you know, so when it's these big things or playing in Europe, they will go and they will go many because then it's a, it's a huge thing. But the general away day in, in the league, the day-to-day, week-to-week basis, it, that, that culture just doesn't exist, I think, in, in Spain. Okay, interesting. Uh, thanks for that. The... So moving back to a, a recent story that you, you've, well, sorry, a story that's come up very recently and um, a very tragic story. Um, and forgive me if I, if I pronounce this player's name wrong, um, but the story I've seen through you posting about uh, on your Twitter page, um, uh, Pelico Novo, uh, the former um, Oviedo forwards, uh, tragically passed away on the 28th of February. Um, could you give us a bit of a background to his story and and kind of where where it went yeah so uh, his name is Pelayo but a good try <laughs> uh, no so Pelayo was uh, he he was born in Oviedo and came up through the youth ranks in Oviedo and um, when all of this went down with, with Oviedo that I was telling you about before when basically the club was as close to as it could to be dead he was in the youth teams of, of the club and a lot of, of the players in the youth teams left the club because uh, if you wanted to, to succeed as a football player, uh, they just didn't have the resources at, at Oviedo anymore to help you do that. But he was one of the of the kids that decided to stay for the simple reason that his dream was to play for Real Oviedo. And when he was 17, he made his first uh, first team debut in, in the fourth division, in Tercera División. Ended up ending the season as a starter as they won promotion to, to the third division. And then spent, I think it was three more seasons uh, playing for El Oviedo at, at their home stadium and becoming uh, a big fan favorite. And then he went to Elche, um, who were in the second division, and he was part in his first season of, of taking them back to La Liga for, I think it was the first time in 24 years. Uh, and then the next season he was alone to Cordoba, and then he helped them win promotion, uh, being directly involved in the goal that took them to, to La Liga for the first time in 42 years. 
and and then back to, to and then he went to Lugo and then back to Elche. But what was very prominent throughout his his career is is not really what he did on the pitches. That every team he was at and every place he he was he uh, he really made a lasting impression because he he was this guy who was always happy. He was always making sure that everyone around him. Uh, was doing well with, and, and, and what happened was like he's spreading uh, happiness and laughter and, and things like that. So he was this guy that people wouldn't forget um, and also very close to the supporters. Like he, he would notice the supporters in, in a way that I think most footballers don't. Um, and um, anyways, then in, in 2018, when he was playing for Albacete, uh, a, a head off on a away game to Oesca, uh, he fell three floors from a hotel, from the team hotel, um, and was rushed to hospital. Uh, ended up staying there for 51 days and, and ended, up, ended up paralyzed. Uh, so his football career was over at the age of only only 28, and that was really rough for him, obviously. Uh, but I think he, he quite quickly still uh, turned things around, and, and he found uh, wheelchair tennis and started getting really good at, at wheelchair tennis. And from what I've understood, he did a, a lot for wheelchair tennis in Spain and helped changing it for a better and adding more professionalism to it. Like from his experience from football, he brought that into his new sport. Um, and like at start, he did it more for therapy than anything. But then that competitiveness in him started coming back and he wanted to compete. So he started competing and he was getting better and better. And I think he was on the way from what I've understood, to become one of the best wheelchair tennis players in Spain. Wow. Um, and he would go abroad and, and play tournaments as well. Um, and then uh, uh, and then he also he moved back to Oviedo and he started working for the club's uh, foundation, helping out with the connection between the international shareholders the club had gotten in, in 2012, like that the club had done less and less things around them uh, through the years and, and the supporters had the local supporters are have been quite upset that like we need to to care more about them. So his job yeah. was basically to strengthen that bond again. Um, and he would like when when people were coming, he would even when he was in England go and act like actively meet up with people, sure that he met them. Who was with Oviedo? When people came to Oviedo, he would he would go and see them and, and, and try to create events and, and things like that. And then he also worked a lot with uh, with younger people with disabilities. He came up with an idea and got uh, the Student Football Federation to, to start a league, new league, which is for, for teams with, with young people with uh, disabilities. So he did a lot of really, really good things and was, you know, always at Carlos Tatier watching Real Oviedo, really caring uh, about this club and, um, and a person that just, Oviedo is quite small, like it's a big city. Uh, but it's still a quite small city, so everyone there kind of knows knows everyone, and everyone kind of knew Pelayo, and he was, you know, this guy who was always happy and always, uh, you know, caring about everyone, and and he's fantastic in every way. So it's a it's a huge loss for not just for the football club, but for the for the entire city. I think uh, losing him, and especially so young. Has um, Oviedo have they played the game since since he passed away? Yeah, so they played yesterday uh, in in Mirandes, in Miranda de Ebro against Mirandes, and they lost, so it wasn't the best tribute. Uh, but they did play with black armbands for him, mm-hmm. uh, and also the other day they announced that they go. They started 
the process of building a new sports center, a training center. Um, uh, then as the first pitch is, is going to bear his name. Um, and then I'm expecting they're going to do quite a nice tribute to him next week and when they play at home. So it's a very touching um, memory for him to be to be kept kept alive in, in the fan in the hearts of the Oviedo fans. Um, one last question on Oviedo uh, before kind of wrapping up. What on your Twitter bio you've got thirty seven slash one four five. I assume that was something relation to the club. No, no, it's no. not. Uh, no, it's just because I didn't have space for to write more. It's more for myself to remember that count. So. The first count is how many Spanish stadiums I've been to oh. in, the, in the first and second, some third division. Uh, and the other number is how many football shirts I have. Right. Okay. Brilliant. So it's mainly for myself, actually, is to keep the counts every time I get a new, I just add it so I don't forget what the, I, what the I, I assumed, uh, which is, which is much, the real story is much more interesting. I assume it's <laughs> something to do with your, your membership of, of the club. But so, so getting on to, um, because in the UK they have, I know there's a, there's a, a thing called um, 92 Club where basically uh, someone goes around, a person, a person goes around to try to go to all 92 professional uh, stadiums, and uh, which makes sense. You know, some people have 20 out of 92, but you've, 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 you've attended 37 so far. Yeah, but I'm like my. I don't really know how I've been counting them, to be honest, because I think sometimes I've been counting, like if I've been to a ground in a team that plays in the third division, and then sometimes I'm not counted that because it's too low division. So I don't really know if it is accurate. <laughs> but uh, but definitely all of the first and second division stadium is, is in that count, and then there is a, a few lower divisions, and then some that I haven't counted, I guess. And your... Your football jersey collection. Um, what do you say? One, uh, one, four, five so far. Um, tell us how someone gets such a number. Just being an, an idiot, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's a really really stupid thing to do to have a football shirt collection because they are freaking expensive. Yeah, they are. Uh, but that sensible side of me is, is beaten by, by the passionate side of me that they just get so happy every time I get a football shirt. <laughs> so I just keep on doing it. But I do have, I do have some rules with my collection. And, and one is that I'm not allowed to buy any shirts online. So I have to buy them when I'm in the city or the country of, of the team. Um, because in that way, every shirt kind of comes with a memory. Uh, obviously, I'm also allowed to to take shirts when people give them to me because that also brings a memory from the person who, who gave it to me. Uh, so in that way, I would say that th- there is a few shirts I bought online, but it's spe- special circumstances, um, and I need to first have a big long discussion with myself before I would ever <laughs> do such a thing. Uh, so it needs to be a special shirt in in, in that sense, but. Uh, I'm not one of those collectors who who buy and sell shirts with other collectors or anything like yeah. that. But the, for, for me, it's more a personal collection and and a collection full of memories kind of thing. Um, so yeah, um, it's just it's ended a, up being that many. I don't really know how it happened, to be honest. Amazing. I, I see you post a picture because obviously you, you you've recently started uh, asking your followers on Twitter uh, to to nominate what jersey you should wear on, on your working. Um, but what I know. It's like saying asking some a parent to pick their favorite child. Um, what would be? Could you narrow down any, any particular jerseys that were say were gifted to you after a match? Was there any one that spring to mind at the moment? So I have do have another rule, which is more of a, 
professional personal rule, which is that I would never ask a player for a shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't really have a lot of shirts that I've gotten from, from players or, or anything like that. Uh, I, I will always uh, accept them if it's given to me, but I would never ask for it. So yeah. it's, it's both a curse in a way because there's so many, I, c- I could probably have had a lot of, of, of player shirts and I would have loved to have them. But I also feel like it's very, me personally, uh, feel like it's an unprofessional thing to do and I wouldn't like that feeling myself. So I never do that. But if I'm, I do have, I can't tell you which one is my favorite because I have realized which one is my favorite in my collection. Um, and it's actually my first ever Malmethev shirt that I got when I was 10 years old. And I think more, more than anything, it's because how I felt when I got it. Because mm-hmm. I, was, I was convinced that I would never, ever get a Malmö shirt in my entire life at that point. Because I felt at, when you're 10, everything feels like it's been going on for so much longer than it actually ha- had. So I probably have just asked for it once before or something. But in my 10-year-old mind, I've been asking for a Malmö shirt for every Christmas, every birthday of my entire life. And I had never gotten it. And I was sitting that Christmas and opening present after present. And it wasn't a mama shirt. <laughs> and it was great things. And I was happy for <laughs> what I got. But, you know, I just wanted that, that shirt. And then I just had one gift left. And at that time, I'd reached the part of acceptance that I would never in my life get some mama shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and then I opened that one. And it was the mama shirt. <laughs> and it was back then, I don't know if they had... A kids shirt but I don't think they did so this was like a small uh, men's grown-up shirt so yeah. it was like a dress for me but I <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't take it off and then I, I I think for three years or something I would have it on on every game I went to and after every game I would run down to to where the player tunnel were um, by the stands and, and get players to sign it so it's full with autographs on both sides um, and it's just like probably players who signed more than once because I had no clue who I had asked. Uh, but it's just like the, all the memories of that shirt of, of the moment when I got it and how happy I was. And, and then like all the games I, I wore it as a kid. So that, that one uh, yeah. obviously has a lot more sentimental value than, than any other of my, my shirts in my collection. It makes me think about my first jersey as well, actually. And um, it was um, 99, 2000. United away jersey I got Dwight York on the back of it and it was around coming up to Christmas time and I went with my mum to the shop to get it and it was supposed to be a Christmas present um, but obviously got home that night and because I had been there when it was being made or uh, didn't take it put it on wore it to bed wore it everywhere but it was a material that kind of like hairs stick to or yeah. and, and it just instantly ruined it but <laughs> I didn't take it off for probably the next three years um, so that's that's an amazing collection of jerseys you have um but i, I like your um your professionalism i, I don't know if i if i would probably ask uh but i, I like how you, you, you keep professional um so i mean you... it will probably happen at some point probably yeah. when you know at the, at the end maybe if i decide to, to not cover spanish football anymore move back to sweden or something like that then then maybe maybe i will convince myself and i, I will ask uh, someone for a share to have us as a memory of, of the, the time I was here. So I'm, I'm not ruling it out that I will ever do it, but I I try my best not to. <laughs> and sometimes it's been really difficult, but uh, but so far I, I've managed. <laughs> have you, might as well ask, have you got a Henrik Larsson jersey? 
I do. I do have a Barcelona Larson shirt. I would love to have a, a Celtic one. I do have a fake Celtic Larson shirt. It was actually the first ever football shirt I had, but it was a fake one, so I don't know if it counts. Right. Uh, but the, that I got when I was like seven. I think my mom just went to, to Intersport and bought the shirt that had seven on it because I liked seven. <laughs> and then I got it and I was just never, I would wear it nonstop. Uh, and that one I still have like every other kind of fake shirt I got when I was growing up I throw them away or, or given away but that one I just, uh, will always keep but I wished I really wished I had uh, a selfie a, a real selfie Larson shirt but at the same time I don't don't want to go and buy you know uh, buy from someone else or anything like that so so it's just a, a missed one if I don't go home to Henrik Larson and steal one from him that might be an option <laughs> Brilliant. Um, okay, so kind of to, to kind of uh, wrap up. Um, what are the what are the plans for yourself? Are you any big tournaments like the, the Women's World Cup uh, later in this year? Or are you covering that for for UEFA? So I'm not sure if I'm going to Women's World Cup yet or not. I might be going um, for for FIFA, but I'm not sure. It's not really decided yet. So we'll see. But hopefully, um, I get to go and do that one. Um, otherwise, it's uh, not too many plans at the moment. My, I've tried to put a lot of focus to, to do this Oviedo book now because I've been working with it since 2018, but basically on my free time. And it's been a lot more work than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've had less time to work on it as, than I wanted to. So I've been trying to, to now put on extra focus uh, on this book and try to do as much work on it as possible alongside my other works. That's kind of going to be my priority um, going forward for a while now and see if I can manage to finish it. And then on the side, I will probably keep on doing some UEFA things uh, around Real Sociedad in the Europa League and, and maybe some, some other things, the Women's, World, uh, Women's Champions League. I hopefully, I get to do some things there as well. And, and some La Liga stuff for, for uh, the Norwegians and the Swedes. But, uh, but I think I'm... My, my, plan is to try at least to to prioritize the, the book and and get it done because it, it would be nice to actually finish it as well and not just talk about it <laughs> excellent <laughs> alex um it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you um yeah really really enjoy talking to you so last word to yourself well thank you for having me um it's it's been been fun uh even though I'm not the, the biggest fan of, of uh, talking about myself, it's, <laughs> it's still been fun going down the memory lane a bit. Cool. Alex, thanks so much. Mm-hmm.